You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, and on today's episode, I'll be talking to Jess Northend, policy lead at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, about innovations that are changing the world from AI to biotech to crypto and beyond. And stick around to the end for our next big opportunity feature, where we highlight a vital consumer need or challenge that's yet to be solved. But first, we kick off with the innovation of the week, where we showcase the one big new innovation you need to know about right now. In this episode, I talk to Amelia Morano-Williams, Stylus's US editor, about key trends that emerged from this year's Natural Products Expo West, which took place in California last month. So Natural Products Expo West is a giant food show in Anaheim, California. And this was the first one that there had been about three years since 2019. So people were really excited to show new products. People call it the Super Bowl of the food industry. And you have brands small and large really competing to get into major retailers there. So it's a really high energy show with a lot of innovation across categories. So natural and organic foods, conventional foods, uh, supplements, really lots of there. So what were some of the, the big innovations that you saw that excited you most? So I think one of the most exciting innovations that I saw were this like foodified supplements that were really crossing the line between functional foods and traditional supplements and vitamins. So this was both in the supplement section and on the regular conventional food floor. So one brand that was really interesting was Child Life, which did a Child Life supplement cookie. So the idea that kids don't necessarily want to take vitamins, parents might not want to give them so many gummy vitamins, which are really high in sugar. So you can give them a more nutritious cookie that has all of the things that you want in there. So there's elderberry for immunity, olive oil for brain health, um, and vitamin C also for immunity. And this is also becoming something that we're seeing across other uh, categories. So the brand Goalie, which makes these apple cider gummy vitamins, they introduced their bites line. So these are little chocolate bites that adults can have if they want a multivitamin in the middle of the day or a supplement to help them with their energy or to calm them down. The idea being that we don't necessarily know if the vitamins that we're taking are something that is really going to support our health long-term. So why don't we have this like small little indulgence in the middle of the day that makes us feel good even if we can't necessarily prove its effects. So I think we're gonna see more and more of this as people are getting more cognizant of their health and different foods they eat and how it impacts them both from a traditional health standpoint, but also from a pleasure standpoint, just feeling good, eating foods that we like. And so in terms of what we've been tracking in this space on Stylus over the, over the past few years, what sort of trends did you see being tapped into and where do you think they're headed? Yeah, I mean, again, I think the foodification here is really the one that is going to be the most significant, both for supplements and for food in general. So in our vitamins, and supplement sector outlook from 2021, we talked about this a little bit, though we were still looking at lots of gummies, which you know are fun for people to eat, but people are starting to think more uh, holistically about what they want their health to be. So I think we're going to start to see more of an overlap between the supplement space and the functional food space really merging to create a new category. One example that we've discussed recently, which I really think is interesting, is this prenatal bar tend. So their idea is that you're not necessarily getting the best nutrient absorption from 
from taking a pill, but if you actually have a bar that you're eating, it's going to be more delicious. So you're going to want to take it, but you're also going to get better nutrient absorption. So I think we're going to see this crossbreeding happen more and more. You know, we've been looking at a lot of functional beverages over the past few years. And I think those are going to get like more and more targeted for the different concerns they're attempting to address, maybe not being able to overtly say it, but we'll start to see more companies really trying to weave these two worlds together to create new approaches to health and supplementation. The Tony Blair Institute for Global Change is a non-profit organization set up by former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair that supports political leaders and governments to build open, inclusive and prosperous societies in a globalized world. Jess Northend is policy lead at the Institute and I spoke to her about the tech innovations she's most focused on and how brands and organizations can keep up with the pace of change. Maybe we can start thinking about AI to begin with, because obviously there's a lot of, well, there's a certain amount of doom and gloom when it comes to discussing AI in terms of automation and replacing of humans in in a lot of jobs and so on. What's your sort of perspective on the future of AI? I think AI is really fascinating. I mean, if we if we step back a little bit, We've had pretty sluggish productivity growth in most of the West for the past couple of decades. And actually, every so often you get a technology that really has the opportunity to, to upgrade productivity. And I think AI is probably that. You know, it's really enabling innovations across sectors, everything from drug discovery to self-driving cars and concerningly as well to new forms of warfare. It's, it's really ubiquitous. And I think, you know, the fact that you called out some of the concerns about AI are, is, is certainly valid. But thinking about how healthcare is changing through wearables, genomics, personalized medicine, really the opportunity in that sector is where you start to see AI combined with people with deep sectoral expertise and skill sets like bioinformatics, for example. So I think AI is certainly a transformative technology. I think it has the potential to make massive economic impacts more so than it has already. But it's also unlocking new skill sets and new jobs. And I think that's what we should be really excited about. Yeah, just to sort of continue your thoughts there on, on the healthcare implications, because I think, you know, certainly uh, when I was at South by some of the most exciting innovation I saw there was it was in the healthcare industry from VR surgery applications and that sort of thing. I, I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of what you're seeing when it comes to health and, and wellness. I think healthcare is really exciting at the minute. When we think about most people listening to our conversation, and I suspect we'll use some kind of wearable in their daily lives. And what that kind of data enables us to do is really have a better picture on our personal health and start to think about how we might want to change our behaviours or indeed in the future share more of that information with medics and with physicians as part of preventative healthcare, which I think is a really exciting opportunity for the future. I mean, one of the big questions that comes from that is then what do you do with this vast amount of data that's going to be generated? And a conversation that we had at South by Southwest is very much around what does the back office look like in terms of how you can store and maximize the value of that data so that it does lead to better patient outcomes. And I think that's a really big area of growth and will be a really big area of growth over the next couple of decades. Yes, and I guess inevitably that raises the question of, of privacy. I was talking to Benedict Evans a couple of weeks ago about this, and, and he was saying that most people's concept, perceptions of what data privacy is are completely 
divorced from the reality of their day-to-day use of technology and the sort of information they give away without thinking about it, you know, it, it is quite vast. I think one of the things that we need to remember is that we are still pretty early in this um, conversation around sharing our data, particularly kind of personal and sensitive data. And so I think there is just a kind of cultural shift that we will inevitably have to go through as we as we start to think more about actually who does have access to our data, what are they using it for, and who are they sharing it with. I, I think there's a second part to this as well, which is really helping people see the benefits of anonymized data sharing in healthcare. You know, we've we've most people have made this bargain that they're willing to have their data shared to get better adverts in exchange for, you know, use of social media platforms. But what if the trade-off was the fact that you get better insight into your own personal health, you know more about your own susceptibility to disease, and you can um, start to take measures and think about preventative healthcare to, to guard against that. I think that's potentially quite attractive for, for lots of people, but it will require a conversation to get us to the point where we are comfortable with that. Yes, and I suppose one of the one of the biggest sort of barriers there is people's l- lack of trust in big tech companies, which again has sort of increased over the years. I wonder whether you have any thoughts in terms of some people are talking about regulation, some people are talking about breaking these big companies up because they're monopolies. How do you view that? I think it's going to be a balance of a couple of different areas. I think regulation is probably going to be part of the the solution, and we have been. In, in terms of governments responding, you know, that, that response has been pretty slow over the past decade. And so I think that's absolutely a, an important part of the picture. The other part that I would say is there are new opportunities as well coming through around individuals potentially owning their own data. You know, if I think about the use of the blockchain, being able to store all of your personal health data in one place and think about the role of NFTs in terms of giving that data to to different researchers, different labs, different companies that you choose to. I mean, we're a long way from that, but I think that is potentially exciting and something that we'll see a greater conversation about over the next couple of years. So thinking about crypto and the blockchain more generally, to reduce it a little bit, you know, decentralization is about taking power back in some respects and and making sure that there is no overall centralized authority that, that controls the flow of finance or, or in NFTs, the distribution of assets and so on. So when you work with governments around the world, how, how are they sort of adapting to, to crypto and blockchain or are, are they resisting it or are they embracing it and, and what are they doing? Thinking about decentralization a bit more broadly, you know, the possibilities are, are there that are inconce- were inconceivable a decade ago. You know, we've talked a little bit around cryptocurrencies, which essentially enable kind of extra governmental financial transactions. If we think about microgrids, some of the use in energy and even things like 3D printing, all of the opportunities really do take us into new territory and that they don't require a kind of central, centralized decision maker. And I think the challenge for policymakers is trying to identify the level of decentralization that's appropriate for their country and their society which is inherently a, you know, a, a values-based political question. And for many of them, you know, Web3 feels exciting, but, you know, cryptocurrencies have potential risks in terms of financial stability. And so there is a real tension here between where do you, you know, put your foot on the accelerator in terms of innovation and where do you start to, you know, create protections for, for consumers? Just one example, there is pretty much no kind of consumer deposit protection 
in crypto, which is not the, you know, not the case in, in financial uh, institutions more generally if they're registered. So this, I think, is going to be one of the big um, questions for governments over the next couple of years. And frankly, an area where we're going to need increased global collaboration as well, given the way in which cryptocurrency flows operate across across jurisdictions. So I think, you know, obviously we're talking about innovation and crypto in particular, and these are incredibly energy resource heavy technologies. And, you know, we are at the tipping point of the climate crisis. So it's obviously imperative for us to discuss the sort of pressures here in terms of e-waste, you know, attempts to, to get towards net zero. And you describe batteries and chips as the equivalent of oil and gold for this century. What, what are the pressures and challenges here and how are we going to deal with them? Yeah, this is a really fascinating area. And I mean, if I think about our lifetimes, you know, the politics of energy have, have governed much of the world. And there was a great book a couple of years ago by Steve Levine that started to explore this idea of the great battery war. And I think we're seeing that now, you know, the Democratic Republic of Congo accounts for around 50% of the world's cobalt supplies. China accounts for around 50 to 60% of the processing capacity. And similarly, you know, there's a single Russian company that makes pretty much 20% of, of battery grade nickel for the world. And if you think about our efforts to, to decarbonize, those resources are in incredibly high demand. And so some of the geopolitical consequences of that we're starting to see now. We've talked about a lot of, you know, really interesting, fast moving innovation. And I think the obvious final question would be, how do you keep pace? How as a business or as a government or as a sort of traditional organization, how do you keep pace with this? How do you decide what to focus on? Uh, what do you advise when you when you talk to people about that issue? Yeah, so maybe I'll start with governments first of all. You know, some of what's required is policy change, but a lot of it is actually a shift in the operating model of of governments. And so, you know, top of my list amongst a long uh, series of things that we often have conversations around, but it's you know really being ruthless in pushing on areas where technology can make the biggest difference. Personalized medicine including addressing mental health. If I think around urban mobility, energy and clean tech, you know, and governments like Singapore are being really strategic about identifying what those areas are and where their competitive advantage is. And I think we'll see more and more governments doing that just in the way that, you know, private sector firms will do that kind of horizon scanning as well. I think that's going to be increasingly important for the public sector. I think there are areas where we'll need renewed global cooperation, areas like data protection, taxation of cryptocurrencies, and, and clearly the climate emergency, all, all things that we've talked about. But the final thing that I would just say is, you know, I, I, I'm really interested in leadership capacity. And we are about to ask a lot of people in positions of leadership in the public and private sectors over the next couple of decades you know, they're going to have to have incredibly strong social skills, but also be able to kind of pivot their organizations and make sure that they're both adaptive and agile in the face of these, these technological trends. That's a big, a big ask. That's, you know, a big job, but I think a, a great opportunity if we manage to get that right. Now, the next big opportunity. This is where we look at consumer needs and gaps in the market that still need to be addressed by brands, businesses and startups. I asked Jess for her thoughts. 
I think a lot about the changing world of work. We're going to see people needing to have multiple periods of reskilling over a lifetime. And actually, that process will probably become more precarious for a lot of people. And yet, we don't seem to quite have figured out a way to help people navigate those transitions in the labour market to figure out what the skills that they need in the future might be, figure out indeed where they are best placed, given their personal history, their existing work, their knowledge and skill sets. And so for me, a big consumer challenge is frankly for all of us, given that we're going to be working for longer in a vastly changed context, how do we help people to to do that more effectively? And I think that's a challenge for governments. I think it's a challenge for startups. And there's, there's some really interesting startups doing great work in this space, often using AI going back to you know, where our conversation started. But I think this challenge is just going to grow and grow over the, over the coming decades. I asked Estella Shardlow, Stylus's Senior Editor of Consumer Lifestyle and Technology, for her thoughts on Jess's response. This is a really important challenge for brands and businesses to address, and it's one we're continually tracking at Stylus. For a start, the whole college-to-career pathway is getting rethought. Less than half of US teenagers are currently considering a four-year degree, and that's down from 71% in 2020. And instead, young people are seeking to continually learn new skills and earn more snackable qualifications. So they're turning to other resources. 72% of Gen Z and millennials have now taken a course outside of their schooling in order to master a new skill. And more than a third are turning to social media platforms when they want to learn something new. So the key opportunity for businesses here is to anticipate the renaissance in apprenticeships across sectors and mesh education with work. Look at Japanese ad agency Dentsu, who recently announced an apprenticeships by default model. So that's offering training to all their young hires to challenge the traditional need for a higher education qualification. Other brands should consider following their lead. That's it for this edition of Future Thinking. I hope you enjoyed it and I'd love to hear your feedback. On Twitter, we're at stylus underscore live and I'm at Christian Ward. And on Instagram, you can find us at We Are Stylus. See you next time. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available. 